Welcome to the 499th Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's Memorial Day weekend, so let's listen to my 2018 conversation with Senga Nangudi. The Philadelphia Museum of Art is now presenting Senga Nangudi Topologies, a survey of Nangudi's career. It's on view through July 25th. It was organized by Stephanie Weber for Lenbach House Munich. The Philadelphia presentation was spearheaded by Amanda Schroka with assistance from Alexis Assam. Nangudi came to prominence in the 1960s and 70s with abstract sculpture made from common materials, work that was often fused with a performative element. This show was taped in February of 2018 and aired in March 2018, when Nangudi was featured in exhibitions at the University of Southern California's Fisher Museum of Art, the Baltimore Museum of Art, and the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. Senga Nangudi, after the break. If you've been waiting patiently to get back to the Getty Center or experience it for the first time, great news. The center has reopened. Savor stunning architecture, sweeping views of Los Angeles, and the lush Central Garden. Check out four new exhibitions, including Photo Flux on Shuttering LA, Artists as Collectors, and Power, Justice, and Tyranny in the Middle Ages. Make free advance reservations at getty.edu. We can't wait to see you. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents All Together Amongst Many, Reflections on Empathy, a multi-generational group exhibition exploring the cultural and socio-political issues currently defining the United States. Presented on the heels of the 2020 U.S. elections, the work of 20 artists takes various approaches to understanding empathy and aim to awaken shared beliefs in humanity during these polarizing times. The artists are based across the United States and through their diverse, unique perspectives, broadly engage ideas centered on land rights and indigenous rights, climate change and the environment, food justice, accessibility and healthcare, immigration and migration, systemic racism, LGBTQAI2S plus rights, the criminal justice system, police brutality, and violence on all accounts. This exhibition, while not an exhaustive survey, provides a snapshot of America's turbulent society today. Altogether Amongst Many, Reflections on Empathy, includes work by artists Joshua Bennett, Lee Conorazzo, Lasania Cruz, Cass Davis, Brendan Fernandez, Marcus Fisher, Cameron Granger, Jeffrey Gibson, Ekanae Joma, Setu Ken Jones, Molly Joyce, Christine Sun Kim, Glenn Ligon, Kambui Olujimi, John Quicktosee Smith, Julia Rose Sutherland, Stephanie Sihuko, Jordan Weber, Carmen Wynant, and Jody Wood. These artists are in constant dialogue with the complex narratives of structural injustices and cultural heritage and make art as a civic and empathetic act. Several works facilitate or employ participation, offering views of how we can engage in civic life during the intertwined crises of systemic racism and COVID-19 and emphasize the joining of voices to transform our culture. The exhibition opens on June 5th with a performance by Marcus Fisher and a performance of exhibiting artist Ekanae Ijoma's Deconstructed Anthems by pianist Dr. Christine Yonina Taylor. Performances will take place outdoors and stream online at twitch.tv slash Center. Find additional details in RSVP at bemiscenter.org slash events. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Sengen Nguti, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I'd like to start way back before you were kind of really even working as an artist, when you were at the old Pasadena Art Museum before Norton Simon took it over and subsumed it into what it is now. 
And, and this was a period you've spoken about before as being really important to the development of your career, to what you would make, why and how. You were an intern and working in education at the Norton Simon, and you, you've spoken in the past about seeing some Paul Clay paintings there. And I wonder what about them got you started or got you interested in them? Well, first of all, I must say that at that point, it was the Pasadena Art Museum. And that's a really important distinction because it's a very different place with a different agenda. And I felt as though I was an artist, even though I was a student at the time. My feelings about art and being an artist were already in place. And Pasadena Art Museum, which at that point was not in the building that is the Norton Simon building, it was in a pagoda-type building. And California, well, Southern California in general, is known for kind of like these quirky, kind of Hollywood-influenced kind of larger-than-life things. So it was in a pagoda architectural structure, and they owned the four, the Blue Four, which included Paul Clay, and I was able to see an original Paul Clay, and what amazed me was you could see his lines. You could see his pencil lines. You could see all these uh, ways he approached his composition. And I was just thrilled because I, I had the feeling that he was human. He wasn't, you know, he was okay with showing lines. He was okay with showing his process. And that's what was important to me. It was kind of a validation. The other thing I, I understand about your time at the Pasadena Art Museum is that it stimulated your interest in movement and in dance. So we're, we're talking about 1965, 1966, and you would bring, as I understand it, groups of kids into the museum as part of the, the museum's education program, and you would have them dance to the artworks? It was was that your idea? Was that standard practice at the time? How did that come about? At Pasadena Art Museum, I was an assistant teacher. And I was assisting a dance therapist by the name of Hilda Mullen. And that's what we would do. We would take the students into the gallery and uh, we would have them dance their expression or their feeling about the art they were seeing or even the lines that were in a particular painting. But I must say to you that my interest in dance did not start there. My interest in dance was forever. And when I was a teenager, I was able to attend, um, oh gosh, Lester Horton. Uh, I was able to attend his dance studio. And at the time, he had passed already, but his legacy was carried on by a number of people, some of whom eventually moved to New York and became the core of Alvin Ailey's dance group. Carmen de Lavalade's sister continued to stay at uh, Lester Horton, and James Truitt, who became James Trutay, <laughs> Uh, when he when he uh, moved to Los An when he moved to New York, uh, was you know instrumental in developing the Alvin Ailey Dance Company. So my interest in dance and modern dance even um, predated my time at the Pasadena Art Museum. And when I was at the Pasadena Art Museum, I was also teaching at the Watts Towers Art Center. And I feel as though I was the luckiest person in the world to be able to be in those two places at the same time when this surge of amazing energy was happening. Because after, you know, the Watts situation, they call it riots, it was just, uh, it was sort of like the rising of the phoenix you know, out of the ashes, out of the the terrible destruction, there arose, arose a, a whole new way of looking at art. A statement that said, 
we don't want to do stuff like you do it anymore. We can take these things, even though they're burned, even though, you know, we everything is burned down to the ground, we can take those very things that burn and create art out of them. We can take the passion of our soul. You know, there was one thing in this timeline from this period that I'm not as clear about. So you're beginning, you know, you're beginning to merge your interest in dance and your interest in visual art. And then in 66 and 67, you go to Japan, to Tokyo. Had you started putting together visual art and dance before that? Or was it when you got to Tokyo that you began to think about that? Well, there's always been this kind of interest in the body, in movement, and coupling that, you know, visually. And so when I was introduced by a book that said, I think the title was something like Contemporary Art in Japan or Contemporary Avant-Garde Art in Japan, the first part of the book was painting. And, you know, that was okay, whatever. Then the second part of the book, (laughs) because it, it was very close to, you know, Western thinking about painting, but the back of the book showed this amazing group called the Gutai Group. And I just, you know, was head over heels trying to figure out, you know, how I could get there to see them. And I was in this program, but oddly enough, all the time I was there, I couldn't find them. I just absolutely couldn't find them. But I was so charged up by their process, their practice, their ways of doing, because, again, it was sort of like a validation that it was okay to do such a thing, you know, because this is where my head was. But, you know, it hadn't really been approached here that much. That's that's really interesting. So the peak Gutai performance era is in the late 50s, but the Gutai group and, 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 and Gutai-related artists, of course, continue to be active throughout the 60s. Did you see Gutai paintings or, or anything while you were in Japan, or was it just that hard to find? No, no. I did not see one thing. It wasn't that easy. I... I you know, I wasn't proficient in Japanese, and, you know, it was a little bit hard, but it was okay because everything in Japan charged me up. Just, you know, again, their way of doing and, you know, their history and you know, everything is just extraordinary. So even though it got me there, what kept me, you know, in a particular frame of mind or open to uh, Japanese culture was Japanese culture itself. You know, they're just, it's just exquisite. And I like simple. And, you know, it's like, there's this elegance about, and I hate to use the word simple because, you know, that has a different connotation, but there was just a, a extreme elegance about everything that they approached, whether it was you know, like tea ceremony or no theater or, you know, just uh, interacting with each other in a very classic, traditional way of of approaching someone and interacting with someone. Well, I think that elegance stays in, in, in your work throughout, and I think in, in some works we'll talk about a little later on. A few years after you came back from Japan, you started making what you called water sculptures. Do you remember why you were interested in using water? Because I like elements. I like water and sand and dirt and air, if I could, you know, figure that out. I just like uh, using, you know, natural elements, nature's elements. And I liked the idea of, just the idea of water, that it's so transitional. It can go from frozen to liquid to evaporating and then coming back to itself and movement, you know, this flow and the uh, kind of peacefulness one gets from water where, I don't know, what are we, 70% water? Our whole existence centers around water. In her great book, South of Pico, the art historian Kelly Jones speculates about whether you knew about Sadamasa Motonaga's 1956 work, Water, 
which is made up of a beloved image of it on, on manpodcast.com, but it's the piece made up of long expanses of stretchy plastic. Did you know about it back then? I did. I think it was in that book that I saw, but that's not how I came to it. I came to it in another way. It's just like Lydia Clark. There's a, you know, there's an image of her holding, you know, like a plastic something filled. I don't, I'm not sure if it was, I think it was filled with water. And again, my thoughts were already there. So to see something like that was a validation that, yes, you can do anything you want. I mean, if this is, you know, where your head is, it's okay. You can do what you want. You can express yourself the way you want to. Not that people might not people might not accept it, but you can uh, extend yourself in a way that maybe might not be accepted, but it is who you are. So, therefore, you have to just kind of express your truth as you see it. Have any of those water sculptures survived? No, but curiously enough, I'm I'm working on a couple now only because. Uh, uh, there's going to be somewhat of a retrospective of my work, so I'm working on that now. But I just, you know, I completely lost interest in doing water sculptures when the whole waterbed thing came in, because <laughs> I was doing this just before that. And then when they did waterbeds, I said, okay, the, you know, let me yeah, put so a... Just to fill in the timeline a bit for listeners, you started making the water sculptures in the late 60s, 70s, 71, around there. And, and waterbeds kind of become commercially available in the mid to late 1970s. So Right, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So that blew that. But I was just fascinated with the movement of the water, and I really, uh, it was very sensual to me, you know, that you could place your hand on these and you'd have that experience underneath your hand of this movement, and that was you know, really important to me. Did you want viewers to touch them or were you mostly talking about your touching them as you're making them? Yes, I wanted viewers to touch them. And that's always been a huge issue in my work because some of the pieces are are kind of fragile. It's, it's hard for, you know, um, someone to really touch it. But with the water sculptures, it was easier for that to happen and to make them undulate and so on and so forth. So we arrive at the mid-1970s and the instigation of uh, what is really one of the most iconic bodies of work in the last half century of, of, of art. And these are, of course, the sculptures you made out of nylon, out of pantyhose. Your son was born in 1974, and you started making these, as I understand it, these nylon pantyhose works shortly thereafter. Could you talk us through how having a child, childbirth, being a mother, maybe breaking down whether any of those had a specific, or maybe all of them, had a specific impact on your choice of pantyhose as a medium? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It had everything to do with that because I was just amazed at the flexibility of one's body, a woman's body, when you're pregnant you know, from really the very beginning all the way through to birth, you see yourself expanding and expanding beyond, you know, all reason. And then once you have your child, then for the most part, your body comes back into shape. And so just the the flexibility of the body, the elasticity of the body, I really wanted to find a way to express that. And not only the elasticity of the body, but the elasticity of the psyche, because, you know, I was going through changes mentally, too, through this process. So there was some stretching and, you know, expanding and and coming back into form with that as well. I really, 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 really wanted to find some way to express this. And, you know, I tried a number of things, and then I happened upon, you know, the pantyhose. And then even with that, I was going back and forth related to what is 
quote, acceptable and what isn't. And at the time, you know, I was with uh, Linda Good Bryant, just above Midtown Gallery. David Hammonds had introduced me to her. So I asked her, I said, well, Linda, you know, I've tried resin, you know, I've tried glue, I've tried all these various things to make it more solid. You know, it wasn't bronze, it wasn't stone, it wasn't all of these acceptable materials. She says, you know, screw it, just do it, you know, and I said, okay. So again, I was validated by, you know, talking with her, and I just went on to do it the way it felt organically right to do it, and I started filling the pantyhose with various materials, but the only one that seemed to feel, again, organically right was to fill them with sand, because the sand, you know, had the ability to create a shape that was sensual as well. You know, there was a weight to it, and I I found that those two combinations just really worked for me. And then I added found objects, too, uh, frequently, although a lot of the pieces had nothing but the sand and the uh, nylons. What were some of the other materials you played with before settling on nylon? Uh, I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) I genuinely cannot remember. I was just playing at the time. And so I just, you know, none of them, you know, really held my interest at all. So I just kind of, you know, piddled around until I I happened upon, you know, the, the pantyhose. And again, you know, just like with the water, it was an issue of, a sense of sensuality, too, that the body holds naturally. You mentioned being interested in having viewers touch the water sculptures. Did you ever go through a period where you wanted people to to touch the nylon sculptures? Of course, I did. But, I mean, it was, you know, couldn't happen. You can cut this out, but I want to tell you a story. A long time ago, when I was a child, I don't know, like 10, 11 years old, because I, raised, I was raised in Los Angeles, I, uh, my mother took me to Clifton's Cafe. And it's different now. They've tried to resurrect it. But again, there's that kind of Hollywood situation going on. And this fellow was, I think, quite religious. And this cafe had a number of levels to it. And... Some of them look like entrances to catacombs. They were like little doors just kind of sprinkled throughout the place. And they didn't go anywhere, but they kind of look like, you know, Jerusalem or someplace. And so I had to go to the bathroom. And I love this place because it was a cafe and they had all kinds of food. And, you know, you could choose your food. And for a kid, that was great. And I went downstairs to the bathroom And bam, right in the middle of the room was this Jesus. It was a huge, to my mind, huge at the time, Jesus, huge. And you could sit in his lap. And I said, all right, now. And so I sat in his lap. And I swear to you, I feel as though that's where my desire to become, uh, to experience things in 3D came from. I really, that was an experience, it was my first, in a sense, sculptural experience, and it was, you know, immediate contact. So it, it was just, you know, being enveloped in, in, in essence, a sculpture, and I really wanted that with my sculptures, with the, my approach, but it just kind of didn't turn out that way, just the way I use materials. But I, I really believe in well, actually public art, as well as a person's ability to interact with a piece of art. It doesn't even have to be sculpture, but, you know, having uh, a relationship with, with a piece of art, you know, that somehow speaks to them. I have a couple of questions about that specific moment in, in the 1970s. The, these pantyhose pieces, which you initially called the Responde Sivu Plays, they're soft. They read to the eye as soft and flexible and malleable. They're opaque. Light, light moves through them a little bit. 
So all of those qualities are the exact opposites of what the big male minimalists of the time and the previous decade were doing and making. Was being in opposition to their materials and their process and their fabrication some of the attraction of pantyhose and nylons? No. I mean, I was just following my own track. They're on their track, and I'm on my track. And no, it wasn't in opposition. It was just simply, you know, following my line of of wanting to do something and wanting to say something in a particular way. No, that didn't enter into it at all. Was the color of the pantyhose you used important? Yes, the color was very important. Also, the logic of of using pantyhose also. I also filtered in the, oh, how should I put it? Uh, when a woman wears a pair of pantyhose, we're usually going through, you know, a certain amount of stress. You're going on a job interview, you're going to a dance, you're going to a special occasion. There's always something that has to do with a bit of tension when you're wearing pantyhose. And so I really, in the beginning, tried to to get used pantyhose. I would use my own, which I still do. I use my own, or I would get some from friends, or I'd go to a thrift store to get some. And I always wash them, so <laughs> but I still felt after washing them that there still was this kind of energy in the pantyhose that held the the energy, the stress energy of the woman that wore it, which of course is including myself. And and so that was an element that I was dealing with too when I was making my selection of pantyhose, that it had this this energy already in it that I was then enhancing. That's awesome. I I'd never heard that before. So what colors did you want and what colors did you not want? Okay, there was never a color I didn't want. Usually I wound up, you know, because pantyhose are, are the color, you know, their skin color. But I often had a very difficult time getting darker pantyhose. And, of course, I wanted darker pantyhose because, you know, that's my skin color. But I found that with the darker pantyhose, they transitioned it over to another type of, of label, like one was brown sugar or something like that. And I found that those were, A, in larger sizes, which they assumed that all of us were larger, and B, the the quality of the nylon was not the same. It, it had too much elasticity to it, so it wouldn't hold shapes the way I wanted so that was oftentimes, you know, something difficult. But uh, I've used tights, you know, that have more color to them. You know, I used a number of, of colors, but pretty much my palette was, you know, within the beige, brown, dark brown range. In the catalog for the Hammer Museum, Kelly Jones Blockbuster, Now Dig This, Art in Black, Los Angeles, 1960 to 80, there are several drawings of yours, drawings for or of these mid-70s RSVP sculptures. We'll have images of them on manpodcast.com. And one of those drawings says at the top, this is a relatively new piece. I have no slight of it. Sorry, but David has seen it before. Um, and I assume that's David Hammonds, with whom you often shared studio space and whom about whom we'll talk about a little bit later. Two questions. First, were these drawings made after you made the sculptures, or were these drawings that became the sculptures? After. So why did you record them in drawing form? What about that was useful or important? Well, because my pieces aren't always easy to install, I always do drawings of you know instructional drawings, shall we say, with with dimensions and and this and that, and so that's very helpful for the person that is you know going to install it. You could you could have just taken a picture though. I could have. I'm still adjusting the 
to the 21st century, which means <laughs> I can pull out my cell phone and just pow, and there it is. But at the time, you know, it was more of a deal. Mm. Yeah, there are lots of little notations about kind of the specifics of tension and that, that, that might not be in a, in a photograph. They're amazing documents. Be, be sure and have a look at them for the, on, on the website. When I'm putting up particularly the RSVP pieces, sometimes, you know, there's uh, certain adjustments that have to be made. I might start out saying, okay, it's, it's uh, two feet wide, six feet long. But after a while, you know, it is elast- you know, it has a lot of elasticity. So there has to be an adjustment made each time to make it a, maybe a little bit wider and it might hang a little bit longer. And also in prepping him, prepping them, it's sort of like when you go out of the house for the day. You know, you look at yourself in the mirror and you go, oh, okay, my, you know, my sleeve needs to be here or, or my collar needs to be up a little bit more. And that's the same with these pieces sometimes. They have to be kind of primped. I, I'm, I'm going to botch this question, but I'll try and ask it as clearly as I can. When Donald Judd would make and sell one of his stack pieces, he would insist that they be installed not to be five feet tall or six feet tall, but in a way that related to the height of the of, of the floor, from the floor to the ceiling. When you make your pieces or made your pieces, were you thinking of them as being three feet tall or four feet tall, or were you thinking of them in relation of the floor to ceiling total space? I would say both. I give some general, yeah, I would say both. I mean, uh, the space spaces are amazing to me just how differently your work looks in a particular space you know the configurations of each space has has an energy all of its own so there are adjustments that have to be made that way but also you know you need some point of reference so yeah one of the ways nylon and pantyhose stay in your work maybe stays in your work stayed in your work was through an installation you made in 1978 called Freeway Fets. And I think it was under the 110 near the LA Convention Center. And then there was a related performance called Ceremony for Freeway Fets. And the performance particularly lives on in photo documentation, which has been much published and exhibited over the years. The nylon sculptures you made for Freeway Fets seemed to hang from the tops of concrete pillars that supported the freeway. What happened to them? Were they there for months or years, or was were they only there for a short time? I am so terrible. I have no idea. What I <laughs> assume happened is that uh, Caltrans came along and, you know, kind of clipped them down as things, you know, as they kind of got worn out because there was a lot of wind in that little area, which I wanted because some of them hung down like kind of like grass skirts in a sense. And so when the wind would hit those particular columns, the, the extended forms would then kind of sway and hug the um, column. Yeah, the concrete uh, pylons, yeah. Yeah the, yeah, the columns. Yeah, and so I really, I don't know. Oftentimes I would just do something and then go to something else. You know, I lost complete interest after, you know, I created something. So I really can't say definitively what happened to them. And, and I've passed by there, you know, on occasion when I've been in L.A. and they've cemented, they've tarred it over, cemented it over and uh, put a gate up and everything, so it, it, has, it does not have the same energy as it had on that magical morning. <laughs> yeah, the photos are, 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 are really great. The, the performance involved, I think, five or six or seven people. Kelly Jones tied the performance and the costumes you made for it, and really, for that matter, the I'm sorry, to Yoruba masking arts, uh, which include what we would now call performance. Did you know about them at the time? Yoruba? Yes, very much so. Mm-hmm. I did. When I was living in New York, I 
you know, was exposed to the religion and, uh, you know, its meaning and, and layers of meaning. And uh, part of my desire, you know, even before that was to somehow uh, couple, or I shouldn't say couple, find common ground between Japanese culture and African culture, because those are the two cultures, you know, that are me, basically. And so there was a common ground when it, it comes to ritual. You know, everything in Japan is, is ritual, even when you're talking on the telephone, you have to call, you have to, you know, answer in a certain way and so on. So Japan is rich in ritual, and certainly, you know, Africa is too, even though, you know, outwardly, you know, they look different. But there's also this issue of performance in ritual where everything is included, you know, uh, dance, visual, music, it's all there. And another thing that I found really fascinating about Japanese art, soji screens and, you know, the, the, the paintings, you know, that are in a scroll and, and even, even, you know, even woodblock print, prints and so on and so forth. They always will, for the most part, they show everybody, you know, they show the commoner, they show the, you know, the, the landowner, they show everybody. But in Western art, there's this, you know, divide, either or, you know, there's the royalty, or there's the commoner. There's never, traditionally, there's never this thing of showing everybody. It's like either or. And that's very depressing, you know, that there's not a, a larger picture. It always has to be segmented in some way. So that was, you know, I, I just had this amazing um, interest and still do in, you know, both of those cultures. And of course, that relationship between dance and sculpture was particularly strong in the RSVPs, which were were always connected to movement, to use Kelly Jones's great phrase. There's a famous photo of um, RSVPX in 1976. The sculpture is on the wall, and you are on the left-hand side of the picture kind of squatting and holding up an arm, and you appear to be wearing a black-shaped costume of some sort, vaguely the shape of like a... It's a like skirt. A, it's oh, a it's skirt. a skirt that you've pulled up over your head? Yes. Ah, well, we'll we'll have a picture on, on on the website, but for the purposes of giving viewers a, an idea of kind of what the effect is, is it almost looks like you're you're within a tree trunk or something. <laughs> what was the movement you were performing there? And and now that I know it's a skirt, why was that having that garment in that position uh, contributive to that movement? Well, I just. I found a skirt in my closet that was, it was a kind of like an A-line skirt. And so it allowed me to, you know, have a form when I was in that position. And it was the type of form that I wanted. And so, you know, it was limited. You know, it was obviously clearly limited. But I must tell you that Marin Hassinger, whom, you know, was, instrumental in, in activating some of the sculptures uh, with me and for me. did a beautiful job, as far as I'm concerned, the epitome of, of activation when I had a show at White Cube a couple of years ago. She performed that piece, and you can see just what I was uh, looking for and wanting because when I when I or she worked with the pieces, it's like we become a dance partner. You know, it's not just a total manipulation of, of the uh, sculpture. It really is an activation of this piece as a, a, a dance partner. 
you mentioned Marin Hassinger, the most obvious and frequent and important collaborator of yours. Simple starting place. How did how and where and when did you two meet? Well, I first was introduced to Marin's sculpture. She had a an art exhibit at uh, Arco Center in Los Angeles, and boy, oh boy, I, <laughs> I had to look that up. It must have been like seventy. 778, something like that. And, I mean, it was a marvel because no black woman, black person, period, had been able to show in that space. And she had a very dynamic sculpture show that include, included these wire... I hope you have a picture of it on your... on your. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah it was just really... They, they were like raw raw nerves they were like bushes but you know there was such an energy to them they were made out of steel cable and pretty dangerous actually you know so it was like it was just really charged with with energy and then after that i we were on a project together which was through the CETA program and CETA program was sort of the 70s and not answer but the 70s WPA program. It was like it was supposed to be fashioned at, like the WPA, where it employed uh, artists to do public works. And so Marin was. Both of us were a part of that group, and we quickly found out that you know we had similar interests in terms of movement and and sculpture and so on. And that's actually. Uh, Alonzo Davis had Brockman Gallery, which was a black gallery in Los Angeles, and he was responsible for that program, as well as Caltrans, and that's really how Freeway Fets came about, through that program. And so uh, we just became great friends and started uh, doing things together, and it's I don't know if there's any other two women that have had a collaborative relationship, friendship for 40 years, but we have been doing this and that through, you know, 40 years of friendship. And and sometimes, well, most of the time we weren't in the same city, but we would help each other through, you know, times that life does to you, you know. We would continually help each other through those tough patches by staying committed to our art. So we would set up different projects for ourselves, you know, like for a month or so where we would do a particular thing one day of that month, each day of that month. You know, we'd uh, think up a, a conceptual idea and then follow through on that, performances, just to keep the energy alive, even though we were Uh, separately going through very difficult times. There is a great story in the Archives of American Art oral history you did about how you and she would keep a pad, a notepad by your beds, and that you would write stuff down. Was that on the phone? Was that just things you'd jot down before bed and that you would trade back and forth? How did that work? Yeah, we would trade back and forth, and that's a part of what I'm saying. You know, during those times where it almost felt impossible to do artwork, we would figure out how to do it. And so we would set up, you know, what we wanted to do for the month, and then, you know, we would do it each each day or each night, whatever. And uh, at the end of the month, we would then exchange that material, for instance, you know, Black History Month, that was fun. You know, we did something related to that each each day, and then we exchanged that. At the end of the month, we would mail it back to each other. And, yeah, and then there were times, like I said, uh, we would create these uh, performance uh, exercise books, you know, where um, we would do some kind of performative act each day or even or at least write it down what we wanted it to be and then be able to do it later. Has any of that been exhibited? Yes, yeah, a couple of times it's been exhibited. Uh Marin was the director of sculpture at uh, MICA, Maryland Institute College of Art. 
graduate sculpture. And I believe there was an exhibit there, and, you know, I sent her stuff there, and, and, you know, she displayed hers and mine, of course, side by side. And there was one other time that it was was exhibited as well. But it, it really, you know, carried us through. And, you know, I really like this idea of collaboration, as you can imagine, with some of the stuff you've seen, documentation. It just kind of keeps you fresh and and motivated and a lot of times art is kind of a lonely experience you're in your your uh your studio and you're just kind of you know in a void in a sense and once you extend yourself and and kind of work with others it helps everybody hopefully archivists and curators are taking note because i'd love to see a lot more of that (laughs) material Speaking of, of other artists, there's also a, a part in that Smithsonian Archives of American Art Oral History in which you flat out stop the interview and, and, and because you want to say how much you value Melvin Edwards and his work. I'm a huge Melvin Edwards fan. He was on the show a couple of years ago. What in his work did and do you love and value and why? Well, Mel Edwards and Barbara Chase were both. Those two, you know, were just so important to me, again, because it gave a sense of, yes, this can happen. Because growing up, I wasn't exposed to black artists at all. I mean, it just wasn't happening. Uh, Jansen's history of art did not have anybody of color in it or, you know, females for that, you know, for that matter, maybe one or two female artists, maybe Cassette or something, Mary Cassette. Or, but in contemporary art, they, it really wasn't covered. And so to see Mel Edwards, the power of Mel Edwards' work, the strength of it, and then to see, you know, Barbara Chase Rabot having an experience, you know, that was really quite romantic and exotic to me. You know, she moved to France. You know, she was able to do her work. She was well known for her work. Her work was powerful, too, in a different way. I mean, these these were, you know, significant people to me because I just, it wasn't even taught in school. And that's, uh, you know, any kind of artist of color, really, except maybe Noguchi. And so these people, as I was exposed to them, you know, really made a, a difference in my life because of the power of of their work. And as um, as a, a young girl, I think I started even in high school, I, w- I would look at African books, you know, and I really wanted to take French because most of the books on African art were in French. But... Um, my French hardly is good, but as I fumbled through these books, you know, tears would come to my eyes because of the way they talked about African art and Africa and, you know, very colonialistic point of view. And then my idol, whom I idled, uh, Picasso, because he had, you know, I, I idolized Picasso because you know, he was ever transforming himself. He was ever changing. But when I heard this quote of his, when the, when they asked him about African art, because clearly he was, you know, taking from it, he said, what art? He didn't even look at it as art. So, you know, I mean, I was too through. I'm I'm serious. I was just too through. So this this attitude, you know, was just really cheerfully sad and so against all that you know Mel has continues to make these these powerful pieces and these powerful statements I think his lynch fragments are the the best known work today but in in the 60s and and, and into the 70s before the lynch fragments he made these pieces where he would set up a a, a steel rectangle or triangle and hang things in tension within them. Do you remember finding things in his work that that related to your work or that migrated or that you think now might have migrated into your work? 
Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's it's kind of in terms of materials, it's just the opposite, of course. But yeah, yeah. Um, that's what part of what makes it so fascinating. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then, you know, there's a certain amount of movement in this work, like some of those larger pieces you're talking about. You know, it's almost sort of like a a rocking chair or, you know, that curve. It's sort of, it 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 intimates movement, you know, it... it totally. I mean, I couldn't agree yeah. more. Yeah, yeah. Two more things. Betty Saar is a Los Angeles-based artist who's about a generation ahead of you, a generation older than you. Was she important to you? Is she important oh, to your work? Yes, of course she is. Absolutely. Yeah, she was very important to my work. There was a, a curator by the name of uh, Josine Iyanko Steros, and she was the head curator for Barnstall Museum. And she and Betty were best friends. In fact, I think they lived close to each other. And Josine was the first person that really, you know, was kind of absolute about pulling in diversity into Barnstall. And she was very generous with us as well as Latino artists and and Asian American artists. And so I just want to mention her because she was really an important figure in Los Angeles in, in terms of you know, just saying, hey, you know, this isn't right. You know, let's 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 have some diversity here. Let's let's show that the breadth of of cultures that are in Los Angeles. And so, when I would visit Betty, I would just see all these little situations that she'd have, all these little drawers of this and that of magical things. And so, yes, she truly, you know, influenced not only as an artist, but as a woman artist, you know, what that would look like. So I'm, I'm coupling them together because that's how I experienced them both, you know, Josine as a curator and, and Betty as an artist and, you know, having children because a lot of female artists did not have children at that time. You know, how do, how do you manage that? All of those were really important things for, for me to experience. And in a sense, in, in that way, she was like a mentor. You mentioned seeing um, all of Betty's stuff in, in all of the drawers and cabinets and such in her studio. Was that important or useful to you in pointing you toward how you could make art out of anything you wanted? Actually, that came from Watts Towers Art Center. I was profoundly blessed to have Noah Pierfoy as the director of the Watts Towers Art Center when I was there. And I don't know if you're familiar with with, uh, Noah, are you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I... Just being in that atmosphere and all of it, you know, besides, you know, gathering all these things, you know, from the ground, found objects that were on the ground, we were all also influenced by uh, Simon Rodia. And Simon Rodia's, the towers that he made, you know, he was a Italian immigrant. He came to the United States. He was so pleased and privileged to be, felt privileged to be here that he created these towers simply by going along the railroad tracks, collecting all this stuff, and then creating it through, you know, his masonry, I guess you might call it. And so that was really important. But I think also uh, important was the fact that when they wanted to tear it down because they said it wasn't stable, after a lifetime of work said no problem and he turned around and he moved up north and so that was really significant that he could turn his back on something that he had given his whole life to and because Noah was so amazing a man genius actually uh, he decided uh, at a certain point in his life to just say to the art world you know if you 
you want to see what I'm doing, fine. I'm going to be out in Joshua Tree. And he created this amazing, <laughs> I, I just, just this amazing place. This, I don't even know what to say about it. His genius was just, you know, and he just let it flow every day uh, in a 110 degree weather. He went out there and created these incredible pieces, these incredible sculptural pieces, you know, these installations. And so I just feel so blessed to be in a tribe of people that are willing to just, you know, it's, it really is about the art and the people, you know, somehow creating something that people can take in and, and allow them, uh, by taking these experiences in, allow themselves to, to grow and to validate their voice, whatever that might be, in whatever way they want to. Because uh, Noah is classic in if you build it, they will come because people go out there in groves to see, you know, his work under these extreme conditions. Finally, one of the real thrills of the show at USC's Fisher Museum was the opportunity to see Warp Trance, uh, a 2007 film video installation you did uh, while on a fabric workshop and museum residency in Philadelphia. What is the relationship, if there is one, uh, between the way fabric moves elegantly along the looms we see in, in warp trance and, and your sculpture? It's more like a performance. You know, when I went to the, uh, when I had that residency at fabric workshop, most of the people that had done uh, that residency in the past were dealing with creating something, you know, that kind of related somehow to fabric. And I really wanted to deconstruct the model. I wanted to deconstruct the way fabric is made. And so when I was doing my research, when they took me out to these uh, uh, factories, immediately I was excited about uh, the sound. The sound to me was like, you know, African drums and the way the machines, you know, just did, you know, just the process of, of the machines also was very rhythmic. And some of the the setups for the machines even looked like altars. I mean, it was just amazing. And so that brought to mind, you know, this idea of, of kind of uh, creating a performance with all these elements that make up creating fabric. And so that was my approach to it. So if you're talking about my work, it's more of, the performative aspect of my work. And when people go into that space, I really want them to be so charged up by the sound that they are willing to move in the space. So I want them to participate in this installation. Yeah, I, I walk, there are these, um, if, if, if I can just describe it for a second, there are these kind of, punch card like screens onto which three different videos are projected and the way to experience the piece is to walk amongst them exactly at the very least walk amongst them and those those pieces are jacquards they're called jacquards and that's for i guess a couple of hundred years that's how it was uh, created the it's sort of like a player piano those holes create the pattern and that pattern then, you know, uh, creates the whole rug, carpet, so on. So, yeah, yes, if you walk through, if you view it from the front, you have an experience. But I make sure that there's enough space in the back that the uh, viewer slash participant, as they go in the back, they experience it a totally different way. And they become a part of the piece, actually, because the piece then reflects on them, literally. 
it's a really neat installation at, at the Fisher where you get warp trance and its projection and the way fabric moves on the looms and then to go um, across to another gallery where it's a complete, the whole galleries of, of pantyhose sculptures and their tension and softness against the movement and the hardness in, in, in warp trance is, is just fantastic. Sengen Nguti, thanks so much for speaking with me. Well, thank you very much. It's been a treat and a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.